Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, of course, last night, President Biden delivered his State of the Union address. Uh, you know, I, I we talked about it on the show yesterday in previewing the speech and said that it's it's usually a night. Um, Tamar Hallerman, who used to cover Washington politics, as, as I did, we talked about the pageantry uh, that surrounds the State of the Union speech, which is true. I mean, it's one of the few events where we have um, leaders from so many sectors of federal government come together, the cabinet members, members of the Supreme Court, uh, military uh, leaders, as well as all the members of the House and the Senate. So there is a lot of pageantry involved, but it's usually a relatively staid evening, and there's a kind of pro forma response from the members, the people the, the, the members whose uh, president is of their party stand and applaud wildly uh, when he says things they want to hear while the other party sits on its hands, frowns, whatever. But it's usually uh, relatively calm. Last night, and I'll ask the panel if they agree with me, it felt more like one of those uh, prime minister question sessions <laughs> that is common <laughs> to the UK, uh, to Parliament. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, the, the prime minister uh, answers questions uh, uh, twice a week, and uh, the response is always very boisterous on both sides. It's a longstanding tradition, and that's what last night felt like. Uh, to me in some ways. Um, So let's do this. There's a lot we want to unpack about the speech. Some of it relates very specifically to Georgia. Other uh, parts of it will relate to what President Biden is going to have to say as he um, previewed last night for us what his reelection campaign is likely to look like and a lot more. So let's get right to it. It's a great group to be talking about this. Professor Andra Gillespie is with us. She, of course, professor of political science at Emory University and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Andra, didn't it feel like a PM questions period to you? Yeah, I think that that is the positive spin on it. Otherwise, we are just devolving into a less decorous chamber, which I don't necessarily think is that good for promoting civil civility kind of between people. I, I absolutely agree with that as well. Um, I'm just sort of trying to put as positive a spin on it as possible for at least a few minutes. But I do think you're right that I shouldn't be uh, quite so uh, happy about the way things unfolded. A lot of what we saw was, was frankly, very troubling. Uh, and we'll talk about that. Uh, Anthony Michael Christ, professor of constitutional law at Georgia State University, is back with us. How are you, Anthony? Doing well. It's another exciting day in Georgia, right? Yeah, a lot to talk about. By the way, it is an exciting day for Democrats in Georgia because the vice president, Kamala Harris, will be here later this afternoon uh, to emphasize some of what President Biden talked about in his State of the Union last night. And we'll talk about where she's going to be and what she's going to 
talk about when she is here. And Leo Smith is back with us. Uh, you know, Leo was a longtime um, uh, uh, part of the state Republican Party. You, Leo, were the minority engagement director of the party for quite a long time. You left that position uh, um, at the time that Donald Trump was uh, coming into his ascendancy. You were never a uh, MAGA guy. And you moved on and formed your own government relations firm, Engage Futures. But of course, you're still very active in politics and still are a Republican, right, Leo? That is right. As the name of my company suggests, I am still engaged in the future of making America. All right. Well, thank you all so much for being here. I I think what I'd like to do is start uh, by asking each of you if you would give us just a very brief take on what you saw when the president spoke last night um, Leo, why don't we start with you? What did you make? What were the highlights, or for you, maybe the lowlights of what you saw in the president's speech last night? Decorum, decorum, decorum. I mean, from the beginning of looking at the situation with where people were seated and Mitt Romney coming in and having a uh, nice little tete-a-tete uh, with uh, our elected official, who I'll make unnamed, but who who basically should not be there in Mitt Romney's opinion, and seeing that go back and forth. And then the energy that uh, I, I stated right away, uh, President Biden ate his Wheaties. He came in there with vim and vigor, and I was really impressed with that. Um, thank you for that. Yeah, uh, what Romney confronted George Santos, who, of course, is under fire Um he, he went right up to him and said, you have no right to be here in a prominent position. Santos was positioning himself for maximum exposure on TV, uh, trying to stand along an aisle to greet the president. And uh, typical George, uh, Mitt Romney, he went right up to him and said, you're a disgrace. You should be as far back in the chamber as uh, possible. That's what you're referring to. Anthony, your thoughts about last night, just this starting point. Yeah, I, I think the, the president needed to tout his accomplishments for the past two years. He had a charter future. Um, he really had to shore up a, and rebuild and build out his coalition that brought him into office in 2020. And then he really ultimately had to show energy and that he was in it to win it in 2024 um, to, to dismiss a lot of the, the chatter about whether he has the, the ability to run again for re-election. And I think he, he ticked all those boxes off. Um, and I think it was a very successful night for him. It was, if if nothing else, engaging television. Um, and I think at the end of the day, the White House achieved what they wanted to achieve. Andra? So, you know, there were three things that I, I, I took from the speech. So one, for the first part of the speech, he was really presenting a, a Biden version of economic populism that I think was going to seek to try to counter Trump MAGA populism um, and trying to make a compelling case for why Democrats can actually address the economic concerns um, of Americans. Um, I also really appreciated it as, as, as sort of uncivil as some parts of, of the speech were. Um, I do appreciate the fact that members... Um, did kind of come together and provided like the right respect and tone when President Biden got to discussing Tyree Nichols and, you know, his calls for police reform. 
Um, that said, probably like the highlight of the speech uh, was when Biden anticipated that he was going to get heckled on the debt ceiling discussion and Medicare got the Republicans heckling. It was like, oh, so you agree with me. So this is off the table now. Right. So you got this done in front of millions of people on television. It was artful um, and it was hilarious to watch. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because in a moment I'm going to play a f relatively lengthy uh, portion of that because it really was something to watch in full. But I want to uh, emphasize something that you just said, Andra. Uh, this was really a good part of his speech, Scranton Joe Biden. He was, you're right, making the populist uh, case that Democrats have not for a long time trying to take it away from the MAGA Republicans who were so successful with it, he emphasized manufacturing. He emphasized the fact that um, he wants to create many jobs that won't require college degrees. Um, so um, I, I thought that was an important part of his message saying, when I run for a second term, and we all know he's going to, Leo, he said, I am Scranton Joe Biden, and I always will be. Leo? You know, I, I tweeted earlier that last night we saw an America first Joe Biden. I mean, he was talking about making sure that domestic uh, uh, prosperity is something that Americans reached for. He did a very good job talking to working class America, even to the point of talking about, you know, having 100 um, percent, you know, uh, manufacturing uh, for certain American products. Um, so. Uh, there's some Trumpism and Trumpism in some of that speech last night. And, and I think there would be some on the left who will be a little upset that he seemed to be very, very moderate last night in his domestic policy discussions. Um, well, people are going to be. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't know if people will be upset about that. What I saw was I, I kept on thinking about Bill Clinton after the 1994 mm -hmm. drubbing and sort of just the strategy of triangulating again, seeing if you can actually appropriate things that uh, grievances that were actually laid bare by the fact that your party lost seats in the previous election. And so this is his version of triangulation, right? He and and, and also I think there was a lot of fear amongst the pundit class in the you know leading up to the speech that he was going to tout all of his achievements and then pretend that everybody doesn't feel like there's a malaise over the country economically. And so I think part of the reason why he didn't say that the state of our union was strong until the end, and also the emphasis on, on, the, on economics in the beginning was to say, yes, I get it. Stuff still feels bad. There are things you don't see yet that we've put in place that you're going to benefit from in the long term. So be patient about this. And we're going to do things that actually like, you know, you care about and actually even the Bernie Sanders wing of the party cares about. So, you know, just the idea of, you know, using infrastructure and only using American products. Right. Like that's something that should be able to appeal to people on both sides of the aisle because all Americans can benefit from that. Anthony. No, go ahead. Finish up, Leo. No, I was going to say, just picking up on what Dr. Gillespie was pointing out, he educated a little bit, Dr. Gillespie. He even gave a little schoolhouse rock lesson saying, hey, the bill just happened in January 1, and so you're not going to see the impact yet. He was a teacher last night, and that was very interesting. Anthony, in terms of the populist message, he also made a strong statement about unions, uh, saying, I believe that we need to support the continuation of unions. Um, it, I, I thought that was an interesting moment. And, and let me make a parallel that, that, that you can comment on whether you think it, it's pertinent or not. So uh, Mayor Dickens 
told the Atlanta Press Club yesterday that he's certain the Democratic National Convention is going to be in Atlanta in 2024 when Biden is expected to be the nominee. Some of the populist messaging that he talked about last night will be very appealing across the country, including in Georgia. When he starts talking about unions, I'm not sure that's the sort of thing he's going to want to talk about uh, at an Atlanta uh, convention. Uh, The Southeast, the South is uh, not going to be a big union section of the country. I I get it. There are Starbucks workers and other lower uh, wage earners who want unions. Nevertheless, the union message isn't a big uh, a big one for Southerners. Well, I, I think Joe Biden is ultimately trying to rebuild uh, a new coalition. He sees himself very much as being another FDR. Um, and part of that is going to have to be building up base, a base of support in unions and building infrastructure through unions in order to shore up that support. Some of that's going to have to be a kind of economic populism, uh, right, which he will have to use in order to bring blue collar workers who have been um, you know, leaving the party or been lukewarm supporters of the Democratic Party back into the fold. And he has to at the same time maintain his advantage in the suburbs. And, and I think that that's what we saw last night in this speech, right? We, we've got a message for union workers who are increasingly unionizing workers in this country. We have a message um, touching on reproductive justice. We have a message that touches um, on, on building through uh, American products. And, and, and I think what he's attempting to do is build a generational, multi-generational coalition. He even said that last night. Um, and and that's, he, that's what he's trying to do here. And I don't think um, you know, whether or not that resonates with everybody in Georgia is really the key here. The key is how does he maintain the coalition that he has and how does he build it out to ensure that he can have a governing majority in Congress and and have the support he needs to to push me- measures through Congress as well. All right. I I love the fact that in the initial conversation, each of you has touched on uh, various sound bites that I want to play during our conversation. Uh, Chase McGee last night uh, listened to the speech carefully, pulled lots of terrific sound. And I want to start, as Andra pointed out, with the way in which Biden, knowing he was going to get pushback when he talked about the Republicans who he believes are going to thwart raising the debt ceiling by demanding cuts, uh, Biden went right at them and as they booed him and jeered him, and in a very unpleasant moment, and Andre was right to, to say this is something we should be disturbed about, now thinking is somehow fun. Marjorie Taylor Greene called him a liar. Uh, she stood and shouted at him. Others did the same thing. But listen to this kind of extended soundbite on how Biden was able to end up kind of being the winner of this entire incident. Here we go. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it, unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. 
You know, it means if, if I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. Folks. So, folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be stopped. All right. Um, we should point out, uh, Andra, first of all, there was a shot, a cutaway shot during all that of Senator Mike Lee, the conservative Republican from Utah, kind of shaking his head vehemently at what uh, President Biden was saying. Uh, but in fact, it was Senator uh, Rick Scott who led the Senate re- uh, campaign efforts in the midterm elections, who very specifically proposed a five-year sunset renewal of Medicare and Social Security. So uh, I thought what was masterful about it was that in a totally improvised moment, the president was able to turn it completely around on the Republicans who were being uh, so uh, mean in their response to him. Yeah, I mean, so the thing that strikes me about that exchange, and I don't know on our end sort of like what your listeners heard, but I don't like, you know, but watching it, like there was a lot of back and forth and, you know, there's a lot of background noise and people obviously showing their disapproval. Um, What's the idea of, especially in a very narrow house in particular, you don't have to have a lot of people to try to hijack a debt ceiling debate or hijack a budget debate. And that's all that, that Biden was trying to say. This isn't necessarily directed toward all Republicans is only directed towards the few who want to obstruct and that this is a problem. And for the rest of you Republicans, if you want to be more constructive about it, there's a way for you to do this, kind of potentially implying that Democrats might be willing to go along with that and you can put a bipartisan coalition together. But what was just so artful and masterful about it was you could see President Biden regaining control of the room, like with a less experienced rhetor, that is a moment where this could completely fall apart. Um, And it could have taken a lot to get people back together. And, you know, and I'm going to give Speaker McCarthy, um, you know, uh, you know, his props, because at various points in the speech, when people really started to get out of hand, he was in the back telling people to shut up too. Um, And so he shouldn't have to do this. We're dealing with grown people who are holding offices of public trust. And we should elect people who know how to behave themselves in public. But they were both doing this. So he gains control of the room and then he seizes control of the situation and does it in a way that if this was a game of pickup basketball, he would have said, like, you just got served, son. (laughs) And that is the most like important thing, like and and especially like on Twitter, uh, like at one point, dementia was 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 trending on Twitter. And there were lots of people who were pointing out the irony of Republican critics always saying that, uh, you know, Joe Biden isn't up to the task mentally that, you know, he is senile. He's becoming demented for for somebody who was allegedly that senile. This is where years of experience um, are coming to bear to show that actually, no, he knows what he's doing um, and that there is something to be said for experience, which is something I think he's probably going to try to carry into a reelection campaign. Well, I think part of that also, Anthony, is Joe Biden doesn't mind mixing it up at all. 
He sort of enjoys the give and take. He made that clear uh, last night. But I think what Andres says is also true. This was the longest speech that Biden has given as president. It went at least 73 minutes. I've seen some timing of it even longer than that. So if it, it may have been, I mean, he had a lot he wanted to get out there, but maybe one of the reasons they went so long is because Biden wanted to show he does have the stamina <laughs> to be able to do that. And in that exchange, it was really clear, Anthony. Well, I, I think Joe Biden would have sat in that chamber for three or four hours if the cameras would have let him, um, right? He was in his space where he thrives. I, I think Joe Biden has always been that kind of person where he, he enjoys the fight and enjoys the back and forth. And part of the reason why I suspect Kevin McCarthy is sitting there in the back telling people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lo uh, Lauren Boebert to, to kind of keep quiet and not stir the pot is because they were playing into the president's hand and and that's what he does best but it's not only a skill that he has innately um you know over that he's built over time and ex with his experience in office but it's something he enjoys and it's something that he really wanted to demonstrate to the american public both to push back against some of the criticism uh from republicans that you know, that, that we need generational change or that he's not up to the task, right, which was a theme of Sarah Huckabee Sanders' response, um, right, into to the State of the Union last night. Um, but he's also wanted to to show Democrats he's up to the task and, and re-energize the Democratic coalition to push him back into office in, in 2024. Um, Leo, a lot of what he talked about last night was infrastructure related. One of the things Kamala Harris will do when she's down here is talk about money going to uh, the expansion at Hartsfield Airport, work on uh, uh, interstate highways and that sort of thing. And uh, Biden, another soundbite that, that uh, Chase pulled that I think is appropriate to play here is Biden talking about the bipartisan nature of the infrastructure bill. Just one of the measures that he uh, said was an example of the bipartisanship that he was able to bring to several major pieces of legislation. Let me play that and then Leo will get you to respond. And I mean it sincerely. I want to thank my Republican friends who voted for the law and my Republican friends who voted against it as well. But I'm still, I, I still get asked to fund the projects in those districts as well. But don't worry. I promised I'd be a president for all Americans. We'll fund these projects. And I'll see you at the groundbreaking. Leo, another great line. I'll see you at the groundbreaking. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, you know, and I'll see you in your senior years is another one that he's had, <laughs> that he had that I thought was really worthy. Um, he was on point in, in response to that, but he started out with that spirit of bipartisan right away, even pointing out that McCarthy, I'm looking forward to working for with you, even though it might be embarrassing to let people know that. Um, so to you, uh, he's saying, and so he actually addressed something that I'm working on with Democracy Resilience, this hyper-partisanship and the fact that there's some value in people being seen as not working together. He started right out with that tone, and that was impressive. Um, I, I, I do have to say that um, one of the things that he recognized and made clear, I think, in the speech last night, uh, Leo, is that the infrastructure money, it, people aren't going to see it in their districts necessarily quickly. It's going to arrive over a period of time, and I think... That's something that he realizes will, um, at first, it may not register, but he is hopeful as he runs a second campaign, Leo, that, that it will become clear to people. 
Well, we saw in all of this polling leading up to uh, the SOTU, the State of the Union address, that Biden is starting underwater, 62% of Americans believing he hasn't done enough, um, Georgians even worse uh, approval rating of of Joe Biden. And the reason is inflation. I mean, the, the fact is, is that the cost of eggs, the cost of food is something that's impacting Americans at their kitchen table, in their pocketbooks, and it hurts. And so he has to ask for American patience as January 1 rolls in and then uh, these his policies start to take effect and people start to see potholes being filled and new roads being built and jobs being created. So, you know, it's going to take a while. But the real issue is, is that also Republicans are going to spin on what he didn't talk about. He didn't get into detail about the border. He had four lines on the border. He's not really talking about exactly what he's doing to deal with the problem of fentanyl and how to deal with the cartels. Um, those issues folks are still going to see as an opportunity to criticize that Joe Biden is leading us in the wrong direction. Uh, I've got to get to a break, but I do want to spend a few more minutes on the speech uh, when we come back, and then we're going to move on to a couple of other important topics in today's show. So you're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Anthony Michael Kreiss, Leo Smith, Andrew Gillespie, join me for today's Political Rewind. Uh, it's quite true what uh, was said a couple of minutes ago. Uh, Biden went into this speech last night with uh, an approval rating of just 35% of Georgians, over 60% disapprove of his uh, work as president. Um, uh, uh, during the speech, he uh, tried to make the case for some of the things that he believes are people ha uh, in his re-election campaign are going to, he hopes, will focus on. And one of them is fair enough to say he worked with Senator Raphael Warnock on uh, lowering the price of insulin uh, for at least at first Medicaid, uh, Medicare recipients to $35. Um, and he proposed that they finish the job and give that price to all people who need insulin. He made the case that it costs maybe 13 bucks to produce insulin, uh, the, the process itself and the packaging, and yet uh, pharmaceutical companies are charging uh, big, big prices for insulin. That was important. He got actually got some positive uh, feedback from uh, Georgia uh, Representative Buddy Carter, who said he was pleased to hear Biden celebrated changes in federal law that will allow hearing aids to be purchased over the counter without a prescription. He also, Carter also agrees when Biden said the federal tax code is too complicated, but of course Biden is not going to support Buddy Carter's fair tax, which most Republicans aren't supporting uh, either. But but I want to uh, end our talk about uh, uh, President Biden's speech by talking about this populist note that he was sounding. Um, Anthony, I want to play a soundbite that I, I think was his direct appeal 
to the American people that he does understand the struggles they've gone through, which uh, we know from all the polling, uh, people uh, blame in many ways on him. Let's listen, and then, Anthony, I want to get you to be the first one to respond. Folks, my economic plan is about investing in places and people that have been forgotten. So many of you listen to me tonight. I know you feel it. So many of you felt like you've just simply been forgotten. Amid the economic upheaval of the past four decades, too many people have been left behind and treated like they're invisible. Maybe that's you watching from home. Remember the jobs that went away. You remember them, don't you? The folks at home remember them. You wonder whether the path even exists anymore for your children to get ahead without having to move away. Well, that's why I get that. That's why we're building an economy where no one's left behind. You know, Anthony, that again is classic Biden. The guy who comes up to people uh, on the street, puts his arm around them and says, uh, hey, I get your problems. I feel you. Uh, the, the difficulties you're uh, struggling with. And, and it's certainly something that he knows he needs to address because the Republicans are going to accuse him of being distant from the problems of everyday Americans, as Sarah Huckabee Sanders did in her response last night. Yeah, so the numbers from the 40,000-foot level of the on the economy are pretty decent, right? We've got record unemployment that goes back to the first couple of months of the Nixon administration. Uh, inflation is waning. Uh, you know, real real term uh, or a real number uh, take home pay is is going up. But at the same time, people aren't necessarily feeling it. Um, and so he had to speak to those voters. He also has to speak to voters that the Democratic Party has been losing, <clears throat> particularly blue collar workers. Um, and here he had an opportunity to take advantage of one of his best political assets, which is his ability to to relate to people and to talk to people about his blue collar upbringing in Scranton and, and, and the troubles and and, and you know, difficulties his family um, had and to relate to people on that level. So I think in, in that respect, um, a lot of the speech was geared towards both, you know, leveraging the president's best political skills and doing so in a way that targets a demographic that direly needs targeting by the Democratic Party. Um, Andre, if I could, uh, I want to turn to the Republican response, which went to Sarah Huckabee Sanders last night. She has just been sworn in as governor of Arkansas just about a month ago. Of course, she was uh, Donald Trump's press secretary uh, for much of his uh, first term as president. Um, and the contrast between Biden trying to make an opti- paint an optimistic picture of the future of America and Sanders was pretty striking. Um, there were ways in which I thought her speech almost sounded like Trump's first inaugural speech, American carnage. Um, she said this, he's the first man, speaking of Biden, to surrender his presidency to a woke mob that can't even tell you what a woman is. In the radical left's America, Washington taxes you and lights your hard-earned money on fire, but you get crushed with high gas prices, empty grocery shelves, and our children are taught to hate one another on account of their race, but not to love one another or our great country. Whether Joe Biden believes this madness or is simply too weak to resist it, his administration has been completely hijacked by the radical left. The dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal 
or crazy. Andra? I mean, there's a lot that's going on there. So she started the speech off on a more optimistic tone, talking about her own personal story and personal journey, especially, uh, you know, her clean bill of health after having mm. a cancer diagnosis last year. Um, and then she switched to the American Carnage speech. Um, and the reasons why she did it are strategic. One, she's rhetorically more effective at doing it than Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of like heckling from the back of the House chamber. But she was engaging clearly in negative partisanship in that moment, right? She provided these stark contrasts and like, I am a Republican because the Democrats are crazy and I'm going to point out how Joe Biden is crazy. And she tapped into anger over cultural issues and used every current buzzword um, and and wedge issue uh, to try to coalesce a certain type of support around you. So, uh, you know, she is providing, you know, she's taking advantage of her gender uh, to provide a softer version of MAGA, which I think is evidence of the fact that one, Trump could go away, but Trumpism is not going away anytime soon. Um, and she is making the case that she is kind of like the newer, softer generation of that. So, um, you know, agree or disagree with her uh, with, with, with her speech. I don't think she went over converts with it, but I think she really did establish herself as being able to be another type of firebrand, but perhaps look less crazy, say, than Carrie Lake did when she, you know, ran for governor of Arizona. Uh, uh, but Leo, um, her entire speech was, you. I think, and maybe Andra would disagree with this, might as well have been ripped from the speeches that all of those mega Republicans who lost elections in the midterm general elections lost too. I mean, her speech was, uh, was red meat for the base. It, it's not the sort of message that's going to help you win a general election in 2024. And I don't quite understand why Republicans don't see that. Well, I'm not so sure that uh, the entertainment nature of politics right now is one that always looks to winning elections. The evidence of that is how we fared in this last election cycle, that we sometimes chose entertainers more than substantive people who could actually win. But I think she did her job in just appealing to the base and general sentiment. I would disagree that it was as radical as uh, some of uh, some of our caricatures out there um, that we have out there. But I thought that she was softer than a lot of people. She she made some sort of universal truths that you know people can agree with. Government exists not to rule the people but to serve the people. Um, and then I'm for freedom. He's in for government control amongst conservatives. People believe Democrats believe in government control more than they believe in liberty. I'm 40 and I'm the youngest. He's 80. He's the oldest. That contrast that Dr. Gillespie is done, she did a really good job of that. And and uh, and then I think that it did strike home with a lot of folks as we deal with the culture war that people aren't comfortable with it. And, you know, of course, we have to learn how to work through that discomfort as we evolve and 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 what America is and how how we will teach in our classrooms, et cetera. But, you know, divided America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal and crazy. I thought that was a very effective line as a conservative because that's what we got to do, get to. We've got to get to what are the new norms in America. And I think she opens the door for that, actually. Um, Anthony, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, when did woke become the, uh, the shibboleth of Republicans? I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me that that the Ron DeSantis's of the world, now the Sarah Huckabee Sanders and other Republicans use woke constantly as a critical uh, term toward democratic policies. 
Um, and it gets to the point where we almost forget that, in fact, there are a lot of things about being woke that are pretty positive that Democrats can talk about positively in terms of actually caring about people and supporting them through social programs that help make their lives better. Well, I think when Republicans say woke, they just mean things that they don't like and social change that they're trying to stand athwart and they can't really stop. Um, and it's 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 a term without really any meaning. I would be you know ne neglectful if I didn't also note that in some respect the, the the term woke has some important origins in the Wide Awake Club, which was a Republican paramilitary organization mm. that supported Abraham Lincoln um, and supported the abolition of slavery. Right. Um, the, the, it's a term that, again, it has no meaning. Um, it's just reflexive. If you ever ask the Republican to define it, um, you would have a hard time getting a definition because they just don't have one. It is just very reflexive. Um, and I, I, I think that what we're witnessing today um, through Ron DeSantis and through other politicians on the right is a recognition that there is just social change happening um, that they want to capture in terms of the politics of grievance, because that is what has worked for this party, or at least if they've attempted to make work in their favor for the last uh, four to eight years, if not longer, arguably. Um, and it's just hitting on that same theme. So it's it's a lot of it's a lot of talk um, without without really any definitions or any any meaningful substance. Well, I specifically wanted to mention the word woke because we've got to take a break right now. But that word plays into the subject that I'm really eager to talk with this panel about coming back, and that's what has happened with the college board and its new rollout of its advanced placement African-American history curriculum. Uh, and I want to ask the panel uh, whether how they feel about whether political pressure has caused the college board to back down on some of what they thought high school students should learn about black history. We'll do that in just a minute. Andrew Gillespie, um, I think most of us are familiar now with the controversy over the College Board's rollout of its new curriculum, advanced placement curriculum on African-American history. Uh, as they usually do, uh, the College Board uh, rolled out to select schools around the country a pilot program, a pilot curriculum, waited for some uh, responses uh, from uh, the schools that were teaching it, uh, before finalizing it. We also then know, by the way, one of the schools that is using the pilot program is Atlanta's Maynard Jackson High School. Well, as we all know by now, uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, uh, attacked the program uh, in uh, very, very harsh terms. Uh, he said this, we want to do history, and that's what our standards for black history are. It's just cut and dried history. You learn all the basics. You learn about the great figures, and you know I view it as American history. I don't view it as a separate history. Well, subsequently, the board rolled out a new curriculum, and it excluded some of the great thought leaders and some of the most important moments in recent, particularly, black history. Why don't you start our conversation on this, please, Andra? 
So this is something I'm thinking about a lot. I may write an op-ed today, so if there are any editors out there, please let me know. I got stuff to say about this. I come at this as somebody <laughs> who teaches courses that are cross-listed in African-American studies. I have had a courtesy appointment in Emory's African-American studies department for almost a decade um, now. Um, and in political science, I actually teach the analog to the AP course there. Um, and I also, as a graduate student, graded the AP government exam because it was a great way to make summer rent money um, back when I was a graduate student. And I took AP, you, you know, I took all kinds of AP classes when I was a student in high school. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with the advanced placement. I think AP is great for really smart, highly motivated high school students to take more advanced classes and to demonstrate that they are making strides to be college ready. Um, that said, what you get in AP class is not what you get in a college class. And so I would always generally sort of veer towards the side of advancing the college class because what you're going to get is more in depth. And I think the thing that is really disturbing to me about watering down the AP African-American studies curriculum is by leaving out what has happened in the last 25 years, you're making what is already a weaker product, even more weak and not making obvious connections to things that happen. Um, you know, when the Black Lives Matter um when the Black Lives Matter movement emerged, I had to rethink my unit on social movements in my African-American politics class because one, students care about what's happening to them. And if I can show them how this relates to things that have happened before and introduce social movement theories that were developed before Alicia Garza was born to figure out or as she was being born mm -hmm. and then figure out how that relates today, right? That's helpful, that's educational. And that's something that's actually gonna get students excited about what's going on. The other thing that just really kind of disturbs me about this is leaving out people who you think are like, you know, are, are, are difficult to deal with, who have tough things to say, but are clearly important to African-American history. So yeah, you have to talk about Bayard Rustin. You have to talk about James Baldwin. You have to talk about Kimberly Crenshaw. You have to talk about how the experiences of Black women are going to be different from white women and Black men and other types of intersecting categories. And yes, that is part of the critical race theory movement in law school, but there's just some basic stuff. Don't say that this is higher you know, creating hierarchies of people. The whole point of intersectionality is to say that this is qualitatively different and that Black women are not, in fact, doubly disadvantaged, that it actually looks different. And so to have politicians who don't know what they're talking about, who haven't thought about this, trying to impose their will on a curriculum, and then even though the AP says that they weren't capitulating, the fact that it looks that way, you end up, one, doing a disservice to the discipline. You are making colleges less likely to take this credit sort of for their departments, for their major. And you are denying students the ability to make obvious connections to the world around them. And so this is just a travesty all the way around. Thank you for that, Anthony. Why don't you jump in? Well, the, the revised uh, curriculum, uh, there's a lot of changes. Uh, among the things that, that Andre talked about, uh, it eliminates readings about black feminism, which strikes me as strange, odd. Uh, it eliminates any conversation about critical race theory and, as Andra said, about the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine how you could, as the college board claimed, say that, yes, we did eliminate those things, but we weren't capitulating to Ron DeSantis and other Republicans, particularly Republicans, who were disturbed about uh, teaching these things. 
Well, I think this is another example of how anti-intellectualism impulses in American politics are, are rearing their head once again. Um, the, re the response from the DeSantis administration is essentially everything I don't like in history is critical race theory. And, and that has resulted in the watering down of, of this course, which is a college course for college credit. Now, I think it's important to, to note that critical race theory, it's a precise uh, term that is really, it's, its roots are in the legal academy, right? This is something that is taught in law schools for the most part and is not a part of the a broader um, you know, educational curriculum in um, you know, high schools, you know, though it is in, in undergrads and the like. And and what's key about this term, right? It's that we're asking about systems and institutions and why they do or do not produce change. It's not about interpersonal relationships or one-off acts of of discrimination, which is ironic because oftentimes, right, diversity, inclusion, equity, um, right, these these diversity trainings, uh, which are criticized as critical race theory, are criticized by critical race theorists as ineffective uh, as themselves. Um, and so we have, you know, what we're asking through critical race theory is, you know, why did Brown versus Board of Education come down when it did? Why do people have, you know, different reactions in the workplace to black women versus black men? And so what the right has done and people like DeSantis has tried to rob the term of its meaning and to make it about anything that they just don't like and anything that focuses on race or deeply embedded animus that has multi-generational effects. And so they've done this in order to be apologists, I think, for, for slave owners uh, in the American's past um, to save the idea of American exceptionalism and, and anything that challenges this Anglo-centric British framework as the starting point of American history. When in fact, ironically, Florida has one of the most rich histories of 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 black independence in in the United States that predates the founding of the of the United States, whether it be Fort Bose or St. Augustine. And the final point I think is important is that we could read texts and walk away from them without being converted. Right? I read Marx in political theory. I did not become a Marxist. I read John C. Calhoun in American political history. I did not become an apologist for slave owners, um, right? I've read <laughs> the gospels in the studies of, of Western civilization and Christianity. You know, I, you know, I came in as a, as, as a, as a Christian, I did not leave with any changed views about my religious tenets. So we can teach things without indoctrinating people. And, and I think it's just a fear of exposing people to truth and that they may not have the pre, they may not walk away with the preconceived notions that they came in with. And that, that is deeply challenging to somebody who is as, you know, deeply, um, and un, you know, anti-intellectual as Ron DeSantis. Leo? I think this is a great argument for something that I truly believe in, and that is more educational choice. Um, that Americans are struggling to make sure that their children are being thought, taught to, to think, to have critical thinking, thinking as skills, not necessarily critical thinking skills specifically about race. And I think that we must be open to the idea that critical thinking preceded critical race theory and critical theory preceded critical race theory. And I think that this just opens that discussion up. And I think that the left or people who embrace things like critical race theory, we got two academics, two professors. I think that we have to have some empathy for where people are and to be more didactic, to teach. Um, that we have to understand there are limits to intersectionality that need to be explained. Um, so whereas I grew up 
uh, as someone who worked in the Equal Opportunity Affirmative Action at a university, working with women who call themselves womanists rather than feminists, um, saying that I, they're saying in that, Bell Hooks herself is saying, I create a demarcation between biologically determined sex and other issues as it relates to race. That is a real discussion that is an academic intellectual discussion. So I think that we need to hold some space open that this discussion by the right right now, DeSantis sort of throwing red meat at it, being sensational with it, but there is real validity to having discussions about what the college board is doing. Um, finally, on this for now, and there's a lot we could continue talking about if we had a lot more time, it, Andra, is that we know Ron DeSantis, uh, it, this is an example of how he is uh, putting himself forward as a new leader of uh, the Republican uh, Party. And if he decides to run for president, there's no question this will be something he will talk about over and over again. So uh, to some extent, you have to wonder about the cynicism of uh, the way he's dealing with this. Well, you know, the cynicism I see is that if he did run with this as part of his uh, party platform, is he gonna run with it for the Department of Education, which is usually a whipping boy of Republicans who think that government is too big and that there's something to, to be gotten rid of? Um, I just in general wanna just encourage people and exhort people to understand what it is that they're criticizing, right? And to understand that when you end up watering down an African-American studies curriculum, you are watering down the study of history, you are watering down the study of literature, right? There are ideas, and you're making yourself afraid of ideas without even knowing what those ideas are, right? And so what I don't like is politicians who have not done their homework, who haven't taken the classes, who aren't in a position to say anything about this, pontificating about stuff that they know absolutely nothing about, and attempting to infiltrate K through 12 education, and in particular, higher ed education, where they want to dictate what could be taught, not just in colleges, but in graduate students to grown people who are sometimes preparing for jobs where they absolutely need to know this stuff. That's what irritates me about this discussion. You know, Anthony, I think one of the lines that uh, DeSantis used in his letter to the college board that really is most interesting is he says, we do what uh, we want to do history. Uh, and that's what our standards are for black history. It's just cut and dried history. Anthony, there's no such thing as cut and dried history. <laughs> No, history is very complex. It requires nuance. It requires a lot of attention to detail and consideration of, of multi-causal effects. Um, very often, I think that there is a tendency on the right to to see things as you you know unicausal, right, and and not to kind of think about the ways in which there are different uh, different kind of movements happening at the same time, and and so at the end of the day, what we really need is to step back and to take history for what it is and, and embrace it. All right, um, we are completely out of time. Uh, I mentioned in the headlines to the show. Uh, that uh, Andrew Clyde is passing out AR-15 pins to members of Congress, and some of them are wearing them around the Capitol. We'll talk about that a little bit more on tomorrow, tomorrow's show. In the meantime, Anthony Michael Christ, Leo Smith, Andre Gillespie, it was a late night last night. A lot of us didn't get much sleep, but wow, you all woke me up with the conversation today. It was just wonderful. So thank you all very much for being here. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.